Hello, this is Dr. Terry Walls, and today we will be mapping multiple sclerosis on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'm thrilled to invite Dr. Terry Walls back to the mic. Dr. Terry Walls is an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she conducts clinical trials in the setting of multiple sclerosis. In 2018, she was awarded the Institute for Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award for her contributions in research, clinical care, and patient advocacy. She is the author of the Walls Protocol call a radical new way to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions using paleo principles and the cookbook, The Walls Protocol Cooking for Life. Dr. Walls, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. It's always an honor and a delight to spend time with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So today, Dr. Walls, we're mapping multiple sclerosis, and that's a very big topic, as you know, better than any of us. So I'm hoping we can go narrow and deep using the matrix to truly map the condition to the best of our abilities. And I'm wondering if you could start us off with a physiological explanation of what MS is. So it is the body's attack on the brain and the spinal cord leading to episodes of worse symptoms, usually pain, weakness, poor coordination, that may improve, but it's on top of a background slow deterioration that gets people within seven years out of their job and within 10 to 15 years, significant impairment with walking, needing a cane, walker, or wheelchair. So you mentioned background and that slow deterioration. Are there specific antecedents that we are aware of in today's realm of science and clinical study that help us understand what the genetic precursors might be? So I think of it as a three-step problem. Step one is having the genetics that make you vulnerable to autoimmunity. There are about 300 different genes that have been identified Most of these genes increase your risk ever so slightly, maybe a half percent to a percent. The step two is you have a infection and there's 16 different viruses and bacteria that increase the risk of getting a autoimmune diagnosis, including MS. And then step three are these wide variety of, in the conventional world, unknown environmental factors. In the functional medicine world, we know what these factors are. And those are the things that we talk about 
and address with our patients. And that really is the diet and lifestyle factors. And when I'm talking to my patients, I classify this as things that you don't have control over and things that you do have control over. And we focus a lot on addressing all those many factors that you do have control over. So I want to dive into those factors we have control over. But before I do, Dr. Walls, a lot of people get fixated with the second step. And I have a similar model. I call it three roots, many branches. And, you know, MS or any autoimmune condition would be a branch, but we look at those roots and particularly at the soil that those roots live in. And those are the things that we have more influence or control over. But I find that a lot of people get stuck on testing for and addressing the infection. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that part of the journey. So that really big study that came out that EBV is a triggering event. And they said that there are 800 cases of MS that came up after having an EBV exposure. And that's in a database of 10 million vets. 95% of those vets have EBV. The vast majority, you know, 95% of all of us have EBV. We all have been exposed to one or more of those 16 different microbes that increase the risk for autoimmunity. But the vast majority don't develop an autoimmune problem. So then why is that? What makes you resilient? We all have these viruses. We all have these bacteria. Most of us can keep them contained and they're not a problem. We need to teach people how to improve their resilience. Yes, I couldn't agree more, as you know. And, you know, this is an increasingly difficult message when there's this promise that we will find the root in a microbe or an infection or even a single nucleotide polymorphism that's going to be the root. And I, I think this is taking us in the wrong direction from where we actually have more influence. So I love the work that you're doing and the way that you're speaking about it. And I'm wondering if we can go into some of those particular mediators for MS. And I know they have to do with the right side of the matrix, but how do we think about what those biggest influencers are? So we'll go through my practice in the VA when I was taking care of the therapeutic lifestyle clinic, my private practice, and the clinical trials. Consistently, what I hear is in the 12 to 18 months previously to having whatever happened that led to your diagnosis of MS, there was usually a severe psychological stress. Occasionally, it was a severe toxic exposure. Very occasionally, it was a, a severe infection. But I would say 90% of the time, there was a severe psychological stress that probably led to high cortisol, more insulin resistance, more inflammation, and acceleration. I think of that as an accelerant to the autoimmune process that had been brewing probably for a decade. Now, that is what unmasked the disease so that it finally brought the person back to the physician and got the workup going and then led to the diagnosis. If we go a little further into the history, probably somewhere five to 10 years before, they can begin to identify, yeah, there were some, in retrospect, that's when things first began. And that might have been tied to the microbiome being disrupted with perhaps prolonged antibiotic use, 
or they can identify that as a child that they had early antibiotics and probably had a yeast overgrowth at that time. And then they may, when I have more conversations, we can identify toxin exposures. You know, being here in Iowa, many of my folks live in rural communities, often have their own private well. And I know in Iowa, 80% of the private farm wells have been contaminated with atrazine, which is a herbicide that's been banned in much of the world because of its toxic effects. You know, again, in conversations with my patients and in my clinical trials, I'm trying to get a sense of how effective their mitochondria are. Are they generating enough ATP? If you're not having efficient mitochondria, then you end up with bioenergetic problems in brain, spinal cord, cranial nerves, peripheral nerves are, are struggling to work well. And that's again, can accelerate the autoimmune process. It can increase the risk of optic neuritis. It will also increase the risk of macular degeneration, one of the leading causes of early blindness in the United States. And so in MS, you know, fatigue and brain fog are very, very common. And I consider fatigue and brain fog to be a indicator that your mitochondria are not working well. Yeah, and we will link to the episode that you and I did on mitochondria. I think there's a lot of clinical pearls and wisdom in that episode, no surprise. There's certain words that you're using, Dr. Walls, that I just want to underscore. You're talking about the factors that unmask the condition that was likely brewing for a long time. And in that, I just want to really celebrate the powers of a timeline and understanding that history for a client or patient. And I also hear you using the word may, not does. And this, for me, makes me want to ask you about how we understand autoimmunity from a correlative perspective and not necessarily always and only looking for the causative? If we look at what is the cause of disease, we had thought that we'd do genetics and understand chronic disease. And it turns out we didn't understand it at all, that there are very few conditions that are closely linked to our genes, that for the vast majority of our health, whether we have great health or poor health, it's a very complicated interaction between the genes that we have and all of these environmental factors. And I do clinical research. The NIH wants to fund you if you study one molecular pathway, which is a great way to understand physiology, a great way to make new drugs. It's a terrible way to create health because life is a very deeply interconnected biochemical pathways with a lot of checks and balances so if you want to create health, you want to support as many of those pathways as you can, which means you want to do diet, sleep, meditation, connection, spirituality, and you want to help people make these incremental improvements to their diet and self-care in small, achievable steps. And ideally, they do it connected to others. You know, if they can do it with their family, that's most ideal. Do it with neighbors, friends, their religious community, their spiritual community, then they'll be very successful. 
Such an important point there, Dr. Walls, in the small achievable steps done together, because a lot of the pushback I see in the realm of nutrition these days is in relation to what we might previously have thought of as a diet. And when people dive in too quickly to these restricted or what they believe to be restricted, even though it might be very expansive, ultimately, protocols, it's hard to sustain, and then they don't see the results, and then they have issues with that protocol. So I'm not sure how you've been able to work with folks to help them and meet them where they are in that kind of step-by-step fashion, as opposed to it being isolating and too much at once in terms of the diet and lifestyle modification. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to talk about it in two ways. One, in my lifestyle clinic at the VA, we would have patients come in with a family member and the family member would come to every appointment. So we go through the why in their timeline, their health timeline, their life timeline, and then collaboratively pick out which dietary pattern speaks most to them. We would have vegetarian options, meat-eating options, ketogenic options. We'd have an elimination diet option. And so we identify what patterns work for them. And then the first step is you add foods. The second step is then you begin to work out, okay, what are we going to reduce and what are we going to eliminate? Things you're going to eliminate, you get out of the line of sight from the patient. And each family will decide what that means. Does it mean you get it out of the house? Does it mean you just get it off the table? Does it mean that you'll decide when you're going to have forbidden foods and the patient goes out for a social event with other friends and families? Or that the family doesn't want to follow the therapeutic diet, they go out and have a meal away so that people have ways of continuing to have the foods that they want to have, but are doing it in a way that is supportive to the patient. Yeah, so important there and that they're not isolated and alone on this journey because it can be very intense to go through the changes and it is a huge lifestyle change. If you take out sugar, processed foods, take out gluten and dairy, I warn people, you'll have withdrawal, you'll have craving, you'll have headaches, irritability. That'll be really annoying the first week, much less so the second week, and typically gone by the third week. If you do this together as a family, you bring in the good food first, and then the second week, you've decided as a family what you're going to remove and the process you're going to go through. And if you're doing this together as a family, people will be very successful. If you do it by yourself, and you're going to eat this new way, and the family's going to continue eating the old way, what we see is tremendous struggle, and people rarely succeed. And more stress, more psychological stress, because you're other, you're not connected, yeah. Now, the other thing that I've since learned from my veterans is that for some people, they can't start with diet, but they want to start with meditation, which is a great place to start. So they work on a meditative practice. Occasionally, they'll want to start on exercise, and that's fine. And when they get that part of their life in order, their health has improved somewhat. And now they may come back and say, okay, now I'm ready to work on my diet. It took me a while to wise up to this, but I've learned to follow my patients. So they say, you know what? Diet's too hard. I can't do that yet. I want to start in another area. Then you know, we have a conversation like, okay where could you start where you'd be successful? And that's where we start. 
kudos to you for paying heed to that. I think that's a huge missing piece in the realm of functional medicine nutrition is that people are thinking that dietary change is a handout, right? Like, and it's so much more, there's education there and we have to follow that lead. So just a huge kudos to you for so many things, but for paying heed to what your patients were communicating. Andrea, I'm embarrassed to say it took me a couple of years to finally realize that. <laughs> you know, for some patients, diet really is too hard. And it they, is. But they could be very successful if we let them start with meditation first or with moderate exercise first. And then when they're ready, they'll come back and say, you know what, I'm ready to take on fixing my diet, making better diet choices. And then they're very successful. Well, I want to talk to you about the clinical outcomes you're seeing, but before we do, can you just speak into what a MS diagnosis looks like? What are the factors that have to come into play for someone to receive a diagnosis? So because MS can affect your cranial nerves, your spinal cord, your brain, you can have a wide variety of symptoms. 20% will have pain in their eyes, decreased vision. That's optic neuritis. 25% will have difficulty with their brainstem. So they might have nausea, vomiting, dizziness. They may have, you know, a lot of rushing in their ears. Another 25% will have a motor complaint with clumsiness, falling, weakness in their hands. And another 25 to 50% will have some sort of sensory disturbance that's not involving their vision. So there might be numbness, tingling, burning pain, cold pain. And then, of course, there's a combination of multiple areas. People see their primary care doc. They're not feeling well. The initial workup looks okay. And symptoms are sort of bubbling along, often for five years, before there's troublesome enough that they finally get sent to neurology for an MRI and a workup. Now that MRIs are easier to get, people no doubt are getting diagnosed earlier than they would have been 20 years ago. And it takes the MRI because there's no specific lab test. There's no really good lab test. So the standard is an MRI that shows lesions in the brain or the spinal cord. And you may need a spinal tap as well. If there's only one lesion in the brain or spinal cord, then they'll do a spinal tap to see if there's evidence that would tell us that there's been ongoing damage. The diagnosis of MS is episodes separated by time and space. So I've had an episode, one neurologic episode, one lesion on my brain. That's a clinically isolated syndrome. That's not MS. But if we see the lesion in, the, in my brain and you do a spinal tap and there's evidence sort of this ongoing low-grade inflammation, now that's enough to meet the criteria for MS. Yeah. And I think that's important, the criteria for MS, because there isn't a clear one-stop diagnosis that's going to get us there. Correct. And there's not a blood test that we can take. We can do an MRI that, depending on the MRI findings, there might be enough that I can make a diagnosis. I don't need the spinal tap. And about half the time, that is the case. And then half the time, the MRI is suggestive. And then we'll still want to do a spinal tap to get some spinal fluid for or more detailed analysis. Super helpful. Okay, favorite topic, clinical outcomes. Tell us what you're seeing with folks who are coming into the clinical trial, who have been diagnosed and are going through the WALS protocol. 
So we've done some trials. We've got an eighth trial going, and I'll get to that in a moment. In my clinical trials, consistently as people adapt basically the Wallace diet, fatigue tends to be noticeably reduced within three months. Quality of life is noticeably improved. And we begin to see improvements in walking, hand function, balance. Our team just analyzed all of the dietary studies that have been done in the study of MS, and there were 14. And they saw that the Walls diet, the low-fat diet, the Mediterranean diets have been helpful in reducing fatigue. And the two diets that were most helpful for improving quality of life were the Mediterranean diet and the modified paleo diet or the Walls diet. And the diet with the largest effect size, I'm very pleased to tell you, was basically the paleo diet, the Walls diet, both for reducing fatigue, improving quality of life. Now, the more things that you do in terms of targeted supplements, meditation, fixing your sleep, adding exercise, the more favorable impact you're going to have on all of these domains. And we have a new clinical trial that we are recruiting for the efficacy of diet on quality of life. We're comparing a ketogenic diet, a modified paleo elimination diet, which is basically the Wallace elimination diet, and the usual diet where people eat their usual diet and we give them a monthly email, video, cooking tips on how to reduce their added sugar, reduce their processed foods, eat more vegetables. We'll be measuring walking, vision, hand function, working memory, and MRI imaging at baseline and at 24 months. People will also come back at three months for some repeat clinical measures. I am so excited. This will be the largest, longest studies that will include MRIs that will have been done in the setting of MS. So huge deal. We are very, very excited about it. It gives me chills just thinking about the study and all that you've done to advance this conversation and our understanding of MS and autoimmunity and the importance of diet and lifestyle modification. Dr. Walls, is there anything we didn't discuss around MS that you just want to make sure we get into the conversation for all clinicians to hear? People need to know that I want them to stay on their current disease-modifying drugs. So if they're on a disease-modifying drug and they come see you and like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited, I'm going to do diet and lifestyle. And if they stop their drugs abruptly, they will get a rebound. If they begin diet and lifestyle, stay on their drugs and feel like, oh my goodness, I am remarkably better. I have more energy. My motor function is better. My sensory disturbance is much less. There will be some time in the future that they can be weaned off their potent disease-modifying drugs to a less potent drug and eventually off of drugs. Well, when people come see me, I have to remind them to stay on their drugs. If they're on the drugs, stay on their drugs, that there will be a time that we can transition them off of their drugs. If they do it too rapidly before we have corrected their physiology and before they have great clinical response, they'll have a severe flare. That's an important message for everybody. <laughs> I think it's the yes and that we just don't want to ignore. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Dr. Walls, thank you again for spending time with us and for the work that you're doing. We will have links in the show notes to the new clinical study and all your other resources. Can't thank you enough. Thank you so much.
The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.